Well, good morning. I want to tell you how encouraged I've been already this morning to be here. Uh, I already knew that you had a good pastor, and uh, I mean that. Uh, I, I'm so encouraged by that. But then to come, I pulled up here, and I said, man, I'm early because there was one car uh, near where I parked, and then I came in here, and then somebody's like, go this way, and I enter this room, and there's all these people praying for the service. And then I, I see posters for the prayer time this uh, next Sunday, and, uh, and then I'm sitting in the service, and already I feel like before I've uh, stood up to preach, I've been immersed in the gospel. So I just want to tell you, as uh, somebody who's known about your church for a long time, but first time here, how deeply uh, encouraged I am to uh, be here and to see what God is doing here. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 1. And uh, as you're doing so, I want to tell you something that you might have forgotten, which is this. Your brain is amazing. Can I get an amen? Everyone's like, tell me about it. (laughs) Praise God, I know he did it, but it is amazing. It really is. It weighs only three pounds. Uh, You know, I I was going to say, I don't know how they found that out, but I actually do know how they found that out. I don't want to think about it too long. Um, It is a spongy mass of water, fat, and protein. It's, it's, if you see a brain, if you see a picture of the brain, it really isn't that amazing to look at. And yet it's more complex than any other known structure in the universe. It contains billions of cells, a hundred billion neurons. Uh, it does amazing things. All, information passes through your brain for everything at speeds of up to 250 miles per hour. Your brain builds an image of the world from photons and electrons, light and dark molecules and motion, and it connects it with what a person remembers, needs, and wants. Your brain isn't really just even a a supercomputer, it's a collection of computers. It's this complex uh, network that learns, that handles all your cognitive processes, that stores memories, that is a seat of your emotions. And the human brain is unique. We know that there's all kinds of brains, our animals have brains, our dogs, our cats, birds, whatever, have brains. But the human brain is unique. It has allowed allowed humanity to invent the wheel, to design semiconductors, to build pyramids, to paint the Sistine Chapel, to compose symphonies, to land on the moon. Despite all the research going on, there's still so much that we don't know about the brain. And so your brain is simply amazing. We have to talk about what it means to live in this world, uh, to steward this brain of ours that God has given us. You know, what does it mean to to live in this world with this powerful uh, collection of computers in our head that we walk around with, we take for granted, we just live every day, not even fully aware of the immense power that we have. And the problem is that, have you noticed, it's really hard, especially today, to live in this world faithfully with these brains that God has given us. You know, one of the reasons why is because we're bombarded like never before. I left my phone over there quite purposefully before I came into the service. I turned it onto airplane mode because I find myself 24-7 being bombarded with these amazing gifts that our brains invented called smartphones. And they're amazing. 
They're recent. It's only been since 2007, really, that we've had them in our pockets, and it's changed everything. Recently, I saw a, a movie of a concert of a band I love. And the weird thing is, you know, as a band, this was, I think, 2006, as a band took the stage, uh, these people pull out their phones. And I'm like, what are those things? And they're taking, you know, they're flipping them open. Do you remember those? And they're taking these grainy pictures. And I was like, that was only a few years ago, but there were no smartphones then. Well, since then, uh, we have these things that I actually would argue are amazing gifts. For, I'm not suggesting for a minute we get rid of them. On the way here, I was able to listen to an audiobook and uh, listen to podcasts and listen to music to prepare my heart for today. All the while, while it was saying, turn here, turn there, don't go there. The, you know, it's amazing. By the way, one of the greatest conflicts I have in my life is when I'm driving with my wife and uh, the phone is telling me, turn right here, and my wife, Shar, is saying, no, go straight here. I'm like, what do I do? This is a trap. Maybe then get rid of your phone, okay? That's the only time. But here's the challenge with the phones. There's something called brain hacking. Uh, the people who are behind the apps on your phone actually spend a lot of money figuring out how to captivate your brain, to get your brain to be addicted to what their, their platform, their service, their videos, and it works. The brain releases dopamine, which is the feel-good chemical. And all of us love dopamine. You get a hit of dopamine, you're like, man, that is good. I, I need me some more of that. That was really good. They've done research and found that with rats, and I know that, you know, that they, they keep experimenting on rats and saying we're just like rats, and it turns out mostly they're right. Rats will walk across an electrified grid, getting painful shocks with each step to get a hit of dopamine. And that's exactly what happens with going online. It's a compulsion, even an addiction sometimes, resulting in a, us being what somebody said is the most distracted generation in human history. And the results are not good. And again, don't hear me as being anti-technology. I'm very pro-technology. I think it's a gift from God, again, to be stewarded. But they say that the studies show that the more addicted you become to your phone, the more prone you are to depression and anxiety and the less able you are to concentrate at work and sleep at night. We're talking last night at a conversation about, uh, or actually this morning, about the rise of mental illness and is it just that we're more aware today than we used to be? Is there more acceptance? And, you know, I praise God that there's more of an awareness of the very real issues like depression and anxiety that we face. But I do wonder, along with that very healthy recognition of this thing that we might have before ignored, I do wonder if our world is making it harder to stay healthy, that all our social media and comparison and compulsion to get these dopamine hits actually makes it harder for our brains to thrive in this world. And somebody said, the more distracted we are digitally, the more displaced we become spiritually. That these gifts from God, you know, our brain and our electronics can actually uh, work together to actually make it harder to steward our brains. And I'm just talking about one of the challenges of why it's hard to live well with our brains in this world. How do we live faithfully so that our brains are helping us walk with God? And today I want to look at Psalm 1 with you because I think Psalm 1 has a little bit of the answer for us. Psalm 1 wants to help us live a blessed life. Psalm 1 wants us to use our minds 
in such a way that our minds actually help us thrive as human beings. The agenda of Psalm 1 is, is to lead us into a good life, a life that is not only enjoyable for us, but a life that glorifies God, one in which we thrive and we're growing. Psalm 1 is really about curation. And we're going to see in a few minutes, you know, curation actually means uh, just what it sounds like. If you go to a museum, the curator says, this one, that will look good on the wall. This one, yeah, maybe we'll put into storage. This one is good. Curation involves subtracting some things from our lives. And we're going to see Psalm 1 leads us there. Psalm 1 is about there's certain things in our lives where we have to say maybe there's a place for them, but that place isn't going to be primary in our lives. And Psalm 1 is also about, but there's certain things that are really worth making primary in our lives. And so Psalm 1, let me just read verses 1 and 2 with you. And as we begin to look at the psalm, Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2 says this, Blessed is the man. Uh, We understand, of course, it refers to women as well. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman. And blessed is not just, my son sneezes sometimes and I'll say, Gesundheit, or bless you, and he'll say, thank you, Father, and he's teasing me because, you know, I'm a pastor and everything, and blessing is sort of a religious term of bless you. Well, blessing is not this, in the scripture, it's not really a religious, religious term of bless you. It's a term of the good life. It's a term of thriving. So, blessed is the man, thriving is the man, happy is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. As we look at Psalm 1, this is not just another psalm. This is a gateway psalm. This is, along with Psalm 2, an introduction to the entire Psalter. And so this is very particularly put here to say, look, as you enter into the world of the psalms that orients us to life with God, messy life, life with its ups and downs, with its despair, with its joy, with everything in between. Psalm 1 and 2 orient us and say, you've got to get this right. This is the way to understand Psalm 3 to 150. You need to get through Psalm 1 and 2 to get there. And so this is orienting us to how to live a blessed life, how to find a sense of happiness that flows from a sense of rightness and well-being. And Psalm 1 gives us a progression And here's where it begins. It says, I want to tell you what to avoid in your life if you want to live well. It begins with this curation of, you know, here's some things to get rid of. Like, put them in the corner, get rid of them, push them as far away as you can from your life because they're going to damage it. And so he says, blessed is the man. And here's some things that a blessed man or woman doesn't do. A blessed man or woman doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. A blessed man or woman doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And I love the progression here. Uh, It's kind of obvious he's giving us an image of first we stand. You know, you're kind of not committed yet. You're checking things out. But after a while, first you walk and then you stop, you stand. So like, I mean, I went to a restaurant last night And first we walk, it's like, should we go to this place? Should we not? We kept walking. Eventually we got to a place, we stand. And eventually we're like, this looks okay. And then we sit, we're inside. And at that point we're committed. Sorry, I guess you can get up and leave and say, we're out of here. But it's really this progression of, you know, first you walk and then you're like, no, I'm going to stop here. 
and then eventually you're like sitting in it. If this involves thinking, behaving, belonging, it's that order, it's gradual. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens without us even realizing what's happened. Be careful. By the way, um, this week I've really been wrestling with, again, uh, how it is that seemingly good people end up entrapped in disastrous sin. And I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, where really somebody was caught. His life looks like this outside, beautiful. But inside he was hiding deep secrets. And um, one day the police uh, burst down his door and arrest him and his wife is like, who is this? I thought I knew this person. And he had a whole secret life I didn't know about and the police are crashing down the door. Well, how does that happen? How does it go from being like we're over here where we're actually like, we look okay, but eventually inside our inner world is crumbling and even those who are closest to us don't even realize it. Well, someone tells us. First, it begins with a little bit of, you know, like walking by and saying, that looks interesting. And eventually like, you know what? I'm gonna take that next step. And then it's not an all at once thing, but just this gradual eventually becoming comfortable and that sin begins to dominate our lives. Someone tells us, friends, if you're gonna be a good steward of this brain, you've gotta really avoid influences that draw you away from God. And again, it talks about wicked sinners and scoffers. Three levels of separation from God. You know, there's the wicked, and then it's almost like it intensifies in saying, okay, well, let's go a little bit deeper to winners, but then there are sinners, and then eventually to scoffers, people who are actually scoffing at God. And Psalm 1, the core message of verse 1 is this, avoid a gradual drift from God because of the influences you let into your life. Avoid a gradual drift from God because of the influences you let into your life. What you let into your life, your media, your relationships, your influences, will affect whether you get closer to God or farther away from him. And so be very careful about the gradual drift. And here's the thing, you don't even know what's happening. I remember swimming one time and the currents were there and I thought I was staying even and I look and there's my family like way down there and I've realized I've drifted. You don't even realize it's happened. Be careful about the very gradual drift that will inevitably happen when you let ungodly influences into your life. They begin to rewire your brain, they begin to shape your brain so that you begin to think and gradually without even realizing your heart is drifting farther and farther away from God. You pick up their perspectives, you see things their way, it will shape life without you even knowing it. I wanna pause here and ask you, what inputs are you allowing into your life that are opposed to God? Um, you know, I, I lo love podcasts on the way home today, if I can find, I'm, I'm through my podcast right now. And, but you know, I realize I have CarPlay, I rented a car, I'll be plugging it in, uh, for two hours today or three, depending on traffic, I'll be, uh, you know, listening. And what I've discovered over the past few years is how powerfully uh, all these influences are. And I've had friendships that have actually become strained because of the different influences that they let in their life and what I let into my life. And be careful. What movies are you watching? What books are you reading? What, what company are you keeping? This passage warns us against uh, not being careful in curating what comes into our lives. Some shows, some books, uh, some uh, podcasts are detrimental to your relationship with God. And we understand they're not overtly evil. I don't think any of us are going to go home and 
uh, today put on a, you know, a podcast about demonic stuff or anything like that, but it's a gradual drift. And eventually, we just find ourselves bit by bit uh, drifting away from the God that we've been singing about today, the one who delights in us, the one who loves us. And instead of our minds, you know, carefully taking in information about him that feeds us, we find ourselves taking information and images that push us away from God. So take this seriously. What influences are you letting into your life? Take action because your walk with God depends on it. Well, verse two gives us the flip side. And so someone is saying, okay, there's some stuff that's gonna be detrimental to your life. And as much as possible, take it seriously. Because a lot of us just think it's no big deal. Take it seriously and get rid of it. But then verse two gives us an a positive action to take. And so it's saying, push this stuff to the side, but here's what you're supposed to do instead. Verse two says, but his delight. Now, I don't know if you underline your Bibles, but I want you to, if you do, like underline, circle, um, but that is an amazing word. Not his obligation, not his, uh, just his habit. I'm a big habits guy. Not just his habit, not just his, his routine. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This is a picture of not somebody who's like, oh, I gotta do this, you know, time for me. Like, it, it's like, it's, I don't like it, but uh, I'm supposed to do it. No, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And here, what the psalmist is telling us is, as we curate what comes into our minds, less of the stuff that's pulling us away from God, more careful, diligent, delight and attention to God's word. No, the word law there literally uh, in its, its most narrow sense refers to the laws of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, but its context, it refers to scripture in general. And I, I think it refers to all of God's word. We can abstract it out and saying what the psalmist is saying here is, as God has revealed himself to his people, I've learned to delight in that. And I, I just pour over the God's word and I'm amazed. It's, this is the antidote to the negative influences that he's talked about in verse one. Delight and meditate on God's word continually. And this isn't just about reading scripture. This is about actually letting your mind feed on scripture. It, this involves, uh, as we're gonna see when he talks about this day and night image, this is, He's saying, like, let your mind drift there. What does your mind drift to during the day? As D.A. Carson said, you wake up in the middle of the night and your mind is so full of Scripture that it, your mind just wakes up thinking about what God has declared. You begin to think in those terms when you see squabbles developing in the church, whether you, when you see disputes about how things should be done, you just act, when you wrestle with the everyday issues of life, your first thought is, what does Scripture say? I wonder what God says about this. I wonder if there's some part of the Bible that I need to read again here. He meditates it on it day or night. Now, is this hyperbole? Uh, is, he, is this almost saying here that if you ever think about anything else that you're in sin? Well, no. It's actually a figure of speech called a mirism. So if I say to my wife, uh, I haven't seen her since Wednesday. She's been uh, up caring for her parents 
and she came home yesterday just at the time that I left uh, to stay overnight and, and come here. My mother's here. I stayed at her house. We had a great visit last night. And if I said to my wife, I think of, I miss you. I thought about you day and night. Now, she doesn't understand that to think, you know, the whole time she's been gone, I've been thinking of nothing but her. I've been sitting there like, oh, Char, Char. You know, she understands it's a term. The figure of speech means basically you've, you've constantly been on my mind. It's, it's a figure of speech to say not only uh, morning and evening, but everything in between. It's sort of the subtext. The, it's always there in the background. It's a figure of speech that says our whole lives are to be full of Scripture. That as we go to work, as we study in school, as we uh, drive all day, there's always this running. Part of our mind is thinking about God and his word. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. And then he used the illustration. I don't know if you've seen a silkworm. I think of actually um, the caterpillars that we get in here in Canada sometimes and how they just, uh, I lived in North Bay one year and how they just devastated the leaves, like they ate everything. And Charles uses this image to say, as a silkworm eats the leaf and consumes it, so we ought to do with the word of God, not just crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle to merely let the eye glance over the words to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language, that your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. What he's saying is it actually begins to shape the very person where you just can tell, I've met people like this. You have too. You just know they've been in the word of God. There's something different about them. There's a, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you just know there's something different about them. And the more you get to know them, you realize this is a person who is not just an acquaintance of God through his word. This is somebody who's a friend of God. Like he spends time with God every day. He is delighting in the word of God. As Spurgeon said of a famous preacher in his day, why this man is a living Bible, prick him anywhere and his blood is full of the Bible. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He can't speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. And then Spurgeon said, I commend his example to you, beloved. This is what the psalmist talks about. He's saying, picture a life where we're so careful about what we let into our lives that we're diligent in getting rid of anything that begins to pull us away from God. Not even sinful stuff, just stuff that begins to gradually pull us away. Imagine a life, he says, that is deliberately taking God's word and saying, I want this to be the formative influence in my life. Now friends, if David could say this, David, strictly speaking, as I said, was, uh, if you wanted to take the most narrow interpretation, speaking of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and by the way, I think these are rich passages of Scripture. I've been spending the past year and a half really going slow, and I'm partway through Deuteronomy. It's amazing. It's, it's awesome. But if I want to say it only gives us a, the smallest uh, picture of what's coming. You know, it gives us, it's almost like seeing 
Uh, you know, when you go to the eye doctor and they're testing your vision, you kind of see the blurry H and the K and you're like, I don't know if that's an H or a K. It kind of could be either. I'm not quite sure. You know, in, the, in Genesis to, uh, the, uh, to Deuteronomy, it's giving us the faintest picture of what's coming. But you and I know so much more, don't we? We know what's coming. It's like the, the Jesus came and all of a sudden the doctor says, the eye doctor says, can you see clearly now? And you're like, I can see so clearly. I can, see Je- I can see God's love for me clearly now. Like, look at Jesus. What I saw only in, in Exodus in a small way I see powerfully now. Look at Jesus. Look at how he loves us. Look at how he's dealt decisively with our sins. Look at the character of God. That God is not merely tolerating you. That God loves you with an everlasting love. Some songs we sang this morning have, I mean, it just was worth coming here for those songs alone to realize how deep the Father's love for us, how amazing God is, how great God is, and how manifested it is in Jesus. So if David could delight in the law of God and the word of God, how much more we who have the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I encourage you today, um, don't read scripture and miss Jesus. We are meant to see Jesus in all of scripture, to see the extent of his love, the invitation that we have to put our trust in him, to receive in him everything that we need. But look at the result. David's saying, get rid of this stuff. Uh, Build into your life this stuff, like feed on scripture. And the result is amazing. Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. What he's saying is, we'll end up just flourishing in life. People will look at our life and they'll see that we're going through hard times and they'll st- still see, well, you still seem to be doing well. What, how are you able to do this? How are you flourishing even in the difficulties of life? Well, because I'm feeding on the word of God, the nourishment it gives me just allows me to flourish. It's amazing. And it goes on in verse six, it even gets better. Uh, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We'll end up being known, loved, and cared for by God. We'll know him. But you know, if we don't do it, the picture's not good. Verse four says, the wicked are not so, and they're like chaff that drives the wind away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The end of verse six, the way of the wicked will perish. The opposite result is, that we'll be like the chaff that the wind blows away. Our lives won't last. In the end, it won't be built on anything that matters. There's a lot at stake here. Whatever shapes your thinking shapes your life. So make God's word the primary shaping influence in your life. There's a lot riding on this, friends. If you want to live the good life, it's actually not that complicated. It's hard, but it's not that complicated. Get in the word. Just... And not just read it, not just get to know it, but feed on it. Uh, See Christ in it. Worship God through it. Allow it to shape your life. I want to get practical here with how we do this. Um, What does it actually look to do this? You know, sometimes I hear pastors get up and they're like, does he live in the real world? (laughs) Like, does he? Of course he's a pastor, right? He works an hour a week. You know, I keep hearing that joke like, He doesn't deal with the real stuff of life, right? Let me just give you um, three 
things that I think will help. And they're so basic. First is actually find a way to read the Bible regularly in your life. Find a way to read the Bible regularly in your life. Uh, statistics show that most Christians open God's word on ch at church on a Sunday and then put their Bible away and, and put it and the next time they pick it up or their app or whatever is next Sunday. Statistics show that if, if you read your Bible uh, regularly at home that you are an anomaly, that most Christians don't do this. Well, Lifeway a few years ago, Lifeway is a big uh, uh, Baptist organization in the States. Uh, if you know anything about the Southern Baptists, well, you probably know oh, the one thing that you can say about them is they're very well resourced. And so Lifeway Research has a lot of money to do a lot of good research. And they did a study and they said, what are the things that actually help people grow? Uh, their question was, what activities, like going to church, praying, reading the Bible, fasting, giving, serving, uh, and they came up with all these things, sharing your faith with other, uh, other people. What activities actually lead to people growing? And they did this research. They, they took all these activities that we can do, spiritual disciplines, and they said, okay, what's the correlation between those and actually people growing spiritually? And they came up with marks of spiritual maturity. And they said, we want to find the correlation and find the habits that actually matter most. Do you know the number one thing they found that helped people grow? By far, out of everything, reading God's word regularly. And that what they said, it was really interesting. They said, they found that actually understanding God's word wasn't even completely important. And here's what I think they mean by this. I've got a one-year-old grandson, and right now he's, you know, bumping into everything and, you know, taking everything in and he's listening to his speak, does he understand everything that we're saying? Not a chance. But pretty soon he's gonna start speaking. He's been taking it in, he doesn't understand it all, but he's learning it. And I think what the study showed was, you know, there are parts of the Bible we don't understand, and sometimes we get frustrated saying this isn't doing any good. We're doing the spiritual equivalent of bumping into furniture and like going, I don't understand it, everything, but we learn. Pretty soon we read it, you know, we go through a second and a third time and a fourth time and we start to get up on our feet and we start to walk and we start to understand and pretty soon we begin to speak. And so the number one thing you can do to grow spiritually is actually get in the word of God yourself. And if you don't understand it, persist. It's okay. Keep reading. That's part of the process. Now, a few years ago, I told our church, everyone, we need to do this together. We're gonna get this Bible reading plan uh, everyone's going to do it, you know, and we did. Three months later, my wife comes to me and she says, you've completely ruined my devotional life. I said, what do you mean? She said, I had a good devotional life. I was in the word of God. And then you came along and imposed your way of doing it on me. And now I've got to figure out for myself again how to get back to what I was doing because you wrecked my devotional life. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is how you are going to do it is different than how I'm going to do it. There's not like one plan uh, some people are going to tell you, get up in the morning. I'm about, actually about to tell you, maybe in the morning is a good time to do it. But you've got to figure it out for yourself. How will it work for me? Audio Bible, printed Bible, in-depth study, you know, like read it in one year, read it in two years, read it, whatever. Get in the Word of God, figure it out for yourself, make it a regular part of your life, start small, get in the Word of God. Ask God's help. He delights in helping us do this. Number two, and this is, just a suggestion, but I found it helpful for me. Uh, and you're going to hear the tension between what I just said, but hear me out anyway. 
try scripture before phone. And this one comes from The Common Rule, an excellent book by Justin Whitmill Early. And he suggests that, you know, what do most of us do when we wake up in the morning? First thing we do is what? Look at our phones. And he says this, just consider this, refuse to check the phone until after reading a passage of scripture. And it's a way of replacing the question with, I'm going to insert here, uh, what did the royal family wear to the vigil yesterday? Um, what did this celebrity do? Uh, what did Justin Trudeau say now? What did the new conservative leader say now? What is the election in the States? It replaces all these questions which have their place to this. Who am I and who am I becoming? What is God doing in this world? He says we have no stable identity outside of Jesus. Daily immersion in the scripture resists the anxiety of emails, the anger of news, the envy of social media. Instead, it forms us to daily uh, get our identity as children of the king, dearly loved. And so it just might be worth trying this. What if we actually woke up in the day and said, before we want to hear from Twitter, before we want to hear from news, I need to hear from God. I need to hear from him. I need him to be the first influence of my day. Uh, Talk to a a bunch of um, students of mine once. I said, talk to somebody you really respect spiritually. And they came back with all kinds of advice. You know, how did you grow? Uh, It was interesting. One of them said, I just decided, and he was kind of a formal guy, but he said, I just want to wake up in the day. I want God to be the first thing on my mind. And so when I wake up, I just say, good morning, God. Um, I'm here again. I want to hear from you. And he gets up. He's a formal guy, but he says, I just need that relational connection with God. And before I do anything else, I need to orient my life to God and say, God, I want you to be the first thing I think of as I begin my day. So consider that. Before you get to anything else, begin with God. And then finally, I think one thing that could help is um, learning and practicing biblical meditation. Uh, Everyone's big on meditation these days. Um, Tim Ferriss, you know, apps on your phone that help you with meditation. I'm so grateful for uh, the biblical meditation, which actually goes back a long way. And one of your uh, co-pastors here in London that we prayed for before the service, Charles Stone at West Park, says this. Um, He says, mindfulness is a spiritual discipline akin to biblical meditation that I practice as part of my daily devotional time. It's not the meditation of emptying our mind or It's actually just setting time to be still before God in his presence in the present moment. It's not emptying our mind, but it's actually filling our thoughts with him and his word and just chewing on it. It helps us disengage from automatic thoughts, feelings, memories, and reaction and simply be in God's presence. So just consider, um, actually open your Bible at home. Find a way that works for you. Maybe decide not to turn on your phone first thing, but get in God's word. And then just chew, meditate, spend time in God's presence in his word. Whatever, friends, shapes your thinking, shapes your life. And so if you want to live a life that flourishes, a life that's blessed, make God's word the primary shaping influence in your life by meditating on it. As your pastor gets up and preaches, come hungry. Come saying, I am I'm just famished for the word of God. Take it in, allow it to shape you because it will lead to a blessed life. Lord, we thank you for um, the amazing brains you've given us. Lord, I thank you for how you've created us to be thinking beings, Lord. 
But Lord, what we think about shapes the direction of our lives. And we live in a world that's shaped by social media, by news, by emails, by ads, by shows. And all of these things, Lord, they're not all bad. They have their place. But we want to be shaped not by them. We want to be shaped by you. Help us to get our identity from you. And so, Lord, help us to delight in your word. We want to live uh, lives that flourish. We want to be like a tree that is in season and it's our, with our leaves not withering. Lord, we want to uh, be able to face the adversities of life and not wither. We don't want to be chaff that drive, the wind drives away. And so our prayer is that your word would lead us to you. Our prayer, Lord, is that we would see you in your word, that we would get to know you in your word, that our souls would begin to be shaped by your word, so that we would become like trees planted by streams of water, producing fruit in season, prospering in all we do. And we pray this, Lord, not for, only for our good. We do pray it for our good, but we pray it primarily for your glory, that you would get all the glory in our lives now and for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.